Well, hello and welcome back to the Ethan Callison Sermons Podcast. Uh, we're excited. I'm excited that you have uh, taken the time to listen to the word of the Lord uh, here today. We have Ruth chapter 2, looking at God's providence in our poverty in, in Ruth chapter 2. I hope you enjoy it. Um, please, if this message makes an impact in your life, uh, we would love for you to share it on, on your social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, any of those places. Uh, share it in your story. Make sure you tag me. Uh, you can find me on all socials. Just search Ethan Callison and I'm there. Um, and yeah, we, we just hope that you enjoy it and uh, look forward to hearing from you as to how God ministers to you. So without further ado, here is God's providence in our poverty in Ruth chapter 2. Well, as we uh, continue in our series through the book of Ruth, what I'd love for you to do is open up your copy of the scriptures or turn or swipe in your phone or tablet to Ruth chapter 2. Um, I have the opportunity and the privilege this morning of actually teaching through all of Ruth chapter 2. It's a, a continuation of the narrative of the, the story of Ruth and Naomi and the redemption and God's redemption in the midst of this. Um, when I was a, a youngin, I guess you would say, I'm still pretty young, but um, shortly after I came into a relationship with Jesus, Dad, I don't know if you remember this conversation or not, but I have a, a great aunt. Her, her name is Ruth. And uh, Dad and I were conversating about uh, our pursuit and passion of Jesus and also with my aunt. I don't remember the exact details of the conversation. But Dad said, well, Ethan, do you know that there's actually the book of Ruth in the Bible? And I said, no, there's not, Dad. That's not a biblical name. And he was like, no, Ethan, seriously, there's a book called Ruth in the Bible. And I was like, you know, that arrogant little teenager, like, no, Dad, there's not. There's no book in the Bible called Ruth. And here I am teaching from the book of Ruth. <laughs> uh, I was thinking of that this past week as I was, I was preparing and studying that. I don't know if you remember that conversation. Probably not. It was probably like, like the dumbest conversation you ever had. But anyway, <laughs> Ruth chapter 2, um, we're going to see four things in here. It's a pretty pretty broad narrative that I'd love for you to record insights and uh, as the Holy Spirit speaks to you you and through his word and, uh, and hopefully through the messages as this, this servant decreases and Christ increases, um, that you record in your edification, your sanctification and growing in the person of Jesus. Um, I'm going to give us a point, a, a text or a, a something that we're going to see this truth in the scripture and then we're going to walk through it in the scripture. Um, so in this, the first thing we're going to see here is that God directs. He's a directing God. And we're going to see this in verses one through two here in, in Ruth, uh, or one through three. So in this, starting in verse one, it's continuing with, with Naomi saying that she was bitter and God has done this to her. And it says, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name is Boaz. I'll just pause right there. This one sentence, this first verse here is really completely out of context with the flow of things. Um, so now when we pick up in verse two, it kind of continues the flow of the story. It says in verse two, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. If you get this, when, when I said that verse one is kind of out of context, it really doesn't flow in the, the, the structure of the, the narrative here is because the, the author who wrote the book of Ruth has given you the, the punchline before the continuation of the story happens. So we, we can assume that Boaz is who's the field that Ruth was gleaning in. But Ruth did not know that. Ruth just asked Naomi, hey, can I go out into the fields and begin gleaning? So she takes this, it's pretty powerful. Ruth here takes initiative and she asks Naomi, can I go glean? Can I go get food for us? Is what she's saying in essence here. Naomi says, sure, absolutely. Go ahead and go and glean. We actually see this if we jump to verse 7, that she then asks the foreman of the field, 
hey, can I glean in your field, which she didn't have to do. But she is a very respectful person. She realizes where she is in the context of here in Bethlehem and then outside the cities of Bethlehem as she's gleaning. Now, I'm saying this word gleaning, and some of you probably already know what gleaning is, but many of you probably don't know what gleaning is. You may have a thought of what gleaning is, but gleaning here in the Old Testament was a way of taking care of the poor, the sojourner, the alien, the widow, all of these individuals. It was a way that they had to work for themselves to get the food, even though they could not purchase land, plant crop, grow crop, harvest crop, and then eat. It was the way that God's law instructed to take care of the downtrodden. And we see this in Leviticus, we see it in Deuteronomy. And I'm just going to pull up the Deuteronomy text here in Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. It says, and when you reap your harvest in your field, and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all your work, all the work of your hands. Leviticus tells us even more so. It says, in the corners of your field, don't reap the harvest in the corners. Leave that for the gleaners. They have to take care of that. They get the opportunity to harvest that. So here, Ruth, she qualifies of two of the three prerequisites to become a gleaner. She's an alien, a sojourner. She's a foreigner in the land. She's not from here. That's one. Second is she's a widow. She doesn't have a husband to take care of her. So two of the three, the other one is, is fatherless. And I guess you could also say she's not fatherless because she had a father. And fatherless means those of the age that they're not in their adulthood yet, but she doesn't have a dad to take care of her here either in this. So really she could be for three of the three. But she asked Naomi, can I go glean? Now I want to make light of this here real quick. I've not spent a lot of time in it. But if we notice, Naomi herself doesn't glean in the fields. I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, we really don't know why she isn't gleaning. We can make some inferences as to why we believe she's not gleaning. One could be that she is, because of the previous text in chapter 1, that she says, call me bitter, God's forsaken me, that she's in a depressed state, and she just doesn't feel like getting out of bed. Does it feel like getting up and go getting food? She could potentially be so disinterested in life that she does not have the will to continue or the drive to continue to want to live. But I think even more so is probably that she is so old at this point in time that she couldn't do the, the back-breaking work that it takes with her. But most of so I don't know where she was hoping to get her food. Maybe that's why she is allowing Ruth to journey with her. But most, most scholars do believe that she just couldn't do the backbreaking work of gleaning in the fields. So Ruth goes out. She ventures out, and she starts gleaning. If we notice in, in verse 3, this is the, the, the cornerstone of this point. In, in the, the ESV translation, it says that she happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. Some of your translations might say, as it turned out. The Hebrew here, this is so cool. The Hebrew here says her chance chanced, meaning she rolled the dice and hit the jackpot. But it wasn't of luck. It wasn't of rolling dice, but God's divine appointments for her to fall in Boaz's field. God directed her there for a purpose, for a reason. She's there because God wants her to be there. When Katie and I, our first kind of date was to prom, and our high school did this pretty awesome after prom, and they had like bull riding inside the gym and inflatables and giveaways and all that. Well, if you stayed through the, the entirety of after prom, they gave away some pretty big prizes. Sometimes the years, you know, like the junior class raises the money for the senior year's um, 
uh, after prom stuff and the prom and all that. So some years, if the class raises enough money, they actually like, just give away money to people, the students who stay all the way through after prom. Well, the class below us didn't do a good job fundraising, so they didn't give away money to our class. That was kind of a bummer. Um, but they had these two big prizes. Our big prizes they gave away was an awesome inject printer and a humongous 31-inch TV. I mean, it was huge, 31-inch TV. So Katie and I stayed through all of after prom, and they start drawing, I mean, there's other giveaways and gifts as well. They start drawing them out, and you had to stay through the continuation of all of after prom. And uh, they get to the inkjet printer, which I don't care about a printer, but they pull a name, the person wasn't there. Pull a name, person wasn't there. Pull a name, person wasn't there. Pull a name, Ethan Callison. Woohoo! I just won an inkjet printer. <laughs> yes, lucky day for me. And then the teacher who was doing the drawing, she really liked me. She said, Ethan, would you like to pull the last one for the TV? Then after a problem will be done. I said, sure, I'll do that for you. Reach in there, pull the name. Wasn't there. Reach in there, pull the name. Wasn't there. Reach the name. Katie Rexrode. <laughs> and everybody thought it was rigged that I gave Katie the TV. Like, no, it's, it's her name is on there. And I'll tell you that story to say, like, that's by happenstance. Like, that's just purely luck of the draw of pulling out a card. That's not how God views your life. He's not just reaching in some magician's hat and pulling out a card and said, mm, I think I'm going to give Mark Bowman this life. I think that sounds good. I'm going to pull this out. I'm going to give Susan Gwill this life. No, no, no. He's divinely appointing and directing your life so that when you come across the field of Boaz, that's where you go and you glean. Every single step of your life is in that. God is constantly divinely directing you to a specific place in a specific job, in a specific time. The family that you raised, the children that you have. Wasn't that testimony powerful by Teresa? God divinely appointed, not by happenstance. God divinely appointed for Matt and Teresa to have Daniel Maddie and Amelia. It wasn't by happenstance. The family you're in, the cousins, the aunts, the uncles, the job that you have, God has divinely put you there for a purpose. If you love your job, awesome. Even if you hate your job, until he calls you elsewhere, he's got you there for a reason. Don't know why, but he does. Many of you go out to eat after church service. Every waiter and waitress that you come across, he has you there for a purpose and for a reason. If you travel a lot for work and you Uber, every Uber driver that you have, God has put you with them for a purpose and for a reason. Are we going to sit and say, God, how can you use me today? Or are we going to be so wrapped up in the rat race of life that we completely miss out on God's divine direction in our life? I love this quote by Warren Wearsby. I was telling the worship team before um, services began, I said, I don't think there's been a message that I've taught that I haven't quoted Warren Wearsby. He's just like... Incredible. He says this. He says, when we commit our lives to the Lord, what happens to us happens by way of appointment and not by accident. Even, I don't know if it's in your personal life or not, you can look back, I can look back in my life before Christ and say, wow, God, you actually aligned that for a purpose and for a reason. But how much more powerful it is when I say, Lord, I'm surrendering and submitting today to you. Would you direct my steps and direct my conversation? So God in this, in this time period with Ruth, God doesn't direct us through idleness. When we, look at, when we look at Ruth, when we look at the principle of gleaning, it's not like Ruth and Naomi was sitting inside of Bethlehem waiting on the welfare or some check to, to be shipped to them for them to, to pay for something to go buy food. No, 
the way that God designed to take care of people, or we take care of one another, first of all, but that we have to work for what, we're, what we've got. That's the principle of gleaning. It wasn't a handout, it was a hand up. There's an incredible book, incredible book it's called When Helping Hurts. If you have a passion for serving people, passion for, for wanting to help people, read that book, When Helping Hurts. In this, God designs us to help people, give them a hand up and not a handout. So in this, you might be thinking, some of you, well, Ethan, isn't idleness similar to having patience? And aren't we called to wait upon the Lord? Yes, you're right. When we look at the word for patience, it means long-suffering, not just sitting here waiting on something and like waiting for a meal to fall into our lap. No, patience is long-suffering. But here, when we, when, we, when we wait, when we are being patient in the biblical sense, we are not being procrastinators. Did, did Roanoke have a Stephen Berry's back in the day? Did y'all have a store called Stephen Berry's? Yeah, I see some head shake. Uh, Stan Virginia had a, a Stephen Berry's come into the mall and like everybody started wearing graphic t-shirts and, and uh, uh, mulberry shoes and all this cool stuff. I'll never forget, my dad had this one shirt, one of his favorite shirts. He says, I don't need an encyclopedia because I have a wife. And then his second, his second favorite shirt that he wore was like, it said this, it said, procrastinators unite tomorrow. <laughs> And in this, when we look at gleaning and we look at God's direction and how he doesn't work in idleness, procrastination isn't God's design, isn't God's plan for us, but it's being patient. And patient is an active thing. Having patience, that long suffering in where you are, that long suffering in God's faithful timing. In God's faithful timing here for Ruth and Naomi even to return to Jerusalem or to, to Bethlehem, to return back to Israel is God's perfect timing. Patience, waiting upon the Lord, is intentional. We're intentionally seeking after his face and allowing his direction to come upon us to, to guide us in this. Where procrastination doesn't even look at what is currently before us or seeking out what could potentially be. It's simply laziness. And God doesn't honor laziness. So it says, so she went out, she entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan, the clan of Elimelech. We'll get to the importance of that. The second thing we see in this text, God directs. Second thing is God protects. He protects Ruth in this instance. And we're going to see this. We're going to read in verses 4 through 13 here. It says, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who is in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who is in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. That's where she asked him, the foreman, if she could glean. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. She was a hard worker. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice on me since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law 
since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wing you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. In this narrative, as we see as it, as it, as it unplays, Boaz here is a symbol of Christ. He's reflecting Christ-like characteristics to us. And Ruth is a symbol of us. In this, when it says in, in verse uh, 10 here, it says, since I am a foreigner, that word for foreigners is the same as the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament would be for Gentile. Why are you taking care of me, a Gentile? Isn't God only reserved? Isn't your goodness and your blessing only reserved for like-minded Jews like yourself? Boaz says, no, the gospel's for all. Jesus is for everyone. Every single one. So in this, Boaz's protection was over her physically. He protected her physically. And remember during this time period, as Andrew opened us up two weeks ago here at North Campus, he said this is in the middle of Judges, the time period, where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Everyone does what's evil in the eyes of the Lord. And there was this animosity, there was this death and destruction that was rampant of people doing whatever they wanted. Remember Samson? He just killed people with a donkey's jawbone because he didn't like them. Remember that? In, in Judges? The same thing's going on here. Men would take advantage of sojourning women as they pleased. We don't know exactly what that means, but it infers physical abuse could lead to, to killing them. As he told, as Boaz told his men, have I told the men not to lay a hand on you? I believe that's what it's inferring. So, so, so Ruth receives this physical protection. She also receives this protection of drinking. That he says, whenever you go thirsty, go and get a drink for the water jars the men have filled. This reminded me, as I was reading this, it reminds me of Jesus in John chapter 4 when he has the woman at the well, right? And he says, you, you long for, for something to drink, but I have living water to give you that you'll thirst no more. Boaz is protecting Ruth here and pointing her to the Messiah, pointing her to the person of Jesus. And then he says in verse 12, this is where we'll get the main part of the protection. As Boaz is giving a blessing over Ruth, he says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Uh, this here, this under whose wings you've come to take refuge is a, uh, an analogy of, of that or a metaphor of that of a, a, a chick being protected by the mother hen. He's getting across here. So in this, there's this twofold refuge being taken care of. The first is this, that Boaz is the hen, or the rooster, I guess you'd say, taking care of Ruth, that he is protecting her, that he's taking care of her. And we've just walked through a lot of Boaz's protection, the physical, the drinking, and all that, as well as I don't even think he realizes the long-term protection that he's going to provide for not just Ruth, but the nation of Israel as the Messiah comes from the lineage, as we'll see in weeks to come, from Boaz and Ruth. I don't think he fully understands. He doesn't know God's plan quite yet. But secondly, in this, Boaz's prayer, his, his blessing over Ruth, was that she would remain under the wings of God, who she has already sought refuge in. Remember she said, your, gods will become, your God will become my God? So she's submitting and finding a refuge in this. 
there's some things I think that we can see in this, this text and this story is, is that man will always fail us. Man will always fail you. God never will. Now that's a hard truth to grasp, and we so easily as Christians say that God will never fail you, but when you're in the middle of feeling like God is failing you, that's tough. But man will always fail you. God never will. Boaz will fail Ruth. You think they had a perfect marriage? Doubt it. Think she ever was upset at Boaz? Boaz was ever upset at Ruth? I can guarantee you it. But God will never, ever take care, never fail, fail you. In our life group this past week, one of the questions I thought was an excellent question was, how are our insecurities indicators of where we have placed our identity? And it was just like, that was a question we just wrestled with in our life group. And someone said this, that they find their security in people, especially their husband, instead of God. As husbands, we will fail our wives. We try not to. We do our best not to. But man will fail you. Wives are going to fail us as husbands. It's just who we are as mankind. We're going to fail one another. We cannot always be a place of refuge and rest, but God never will fail us. Boaz is like Christ here, but he isn't Christ. He isn't. And as Christians, we should protect, we should love, we should take care of, we should direct and provide and do all things good for people but we can never be Christ in the essence of their Savior. Only He can be a person's Savior. And maybe you're trying to be a Savior to someone right now. Maybe you're trying to protect someone that you're not meant to protect. Maybe you have a wayward relative that you're trying to, to, to do everything to, to love and to guide back and to shepherd back into the flock. And you're doing things that God is never commuting the very back. I love Robbie Gallaty. One of his books is recovered. It tells his personal testimony in the very back of it. It says how is a, he was a drug addict in the back. It says, if you're a family member of a, a relative who is a drug addict, one thing that you can't be is their savior. Because if you're their savior, Christ never can be their savior. And what happens is we enable people. That's what happens. Christ can't save them if you always are. If you're always stepping in and mediating and taking care, maybe you're financially stabilizing someone. In reality, God has never called you to that. Maybe he has, I don't know, but God never has called you to that. Christ can't save them if you always are. The third thing we see in this text in verses 14 through 17 is that God provides. So God directs in verses one through three, God protects and then God provides. We'll read verses 14 through 17 here. It says, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her grain, roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some leftover. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an epiph of barley. In this, um, Boaz provides lunch for Ruth here. In, in the gleaners, gleaners would have to fend for themselves for lunch. They could either take what they have just gleaned from the fields and make their lunch or bring their own lunch. Like they just fend it for themselves. The, the owner of the property never took care of a gleaner. They never provided lunch for a gleaner. 
They provided the means for them to make themselves things, but they never provided the lunch themselves. But here, Boaz invites Ruth to have lunch with her. The the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, it, it translates it this way. It says, come over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. I like vinegar sauce better than wine. I think it's really cool. Bread, the, in, this, in this text here, the bread was, was roasted barley that would be, um, they would take and grind the barley down and they would put it on an iron plate and they would kind of fry it over an open fire. Pretty romantic first date, right? Here's some bread, honey. Have this. That's all I got. It's bread. Oh, actually, hang on. I got some vinegar sauce. I got some vinegar sauce for our bread. Then it is the vinegar sauce was it was a delicacy that was meant to enhance the meal. You can think similar to this. If how many of you been to Carabas before? Think you know when Carabas brings you your bread, they bring you the the little oil that you dip it in. Similar of of sorts. There's the best thing that I can compare it to. So he provides for her in this way, and then it says that she was she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. I want, to, want us to stop and notice this theme with God and food. Now, we're Baptists, so we like to eat, right? We, we love to eat. We, we don't do anything without eating, even if it's hot dogs and chips. But in this, when we see God in providing for food, he always provides enough. And sometimes he provides enough and some more. When we think of Jesus with the feeding of the 3,000 or the feeding of the 5,000, everyone ate till they were content or till they were full. And in some instances, like the feeding of the 5,000, he had 12 baskets full of fish and loaves, saying that his grace is sufficient and even more than enough for us. Here, Ruth ate till she was content and full, and Boaz gave her more so she could take back to Naomi and provide for her there. But he provides for her in the food, and he provides for her in the gleaning. Verses 15 through 16. Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, And also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Once again, Boaz is going above and beyond what he has to do, what the law requires him to do. What it means here when it says let her her glean amongst the the, um, reapers here is that she would literally walk alongside of those who were cutting the stalks down, who were cutting the barley down, and she could have of the, the fullness of the barley instead of picking up scraps that have fallen on the ground. Then he goes even further and says, actually take some of the bundles that's on the wagon, throw that off and let her pick that up because I'm going to be that good to her. Now in this, I think there's something that we can see here is that you can't do this. Boaz couldn't do this for every gleaner, right? We don't know how many gleaners he had in his field, but he couldn't take care of every gleaner like this, but he could for one, right? He could for one individual, he could provide for her in this manner. So Boaz here, he sets a lot of examples for us because he is Christ like he's pointing to Christ. He sets examples of us not only of how to manage people and work for God's glory, but he sets an example for us of how to live generous lives, how we are to live generous lives. God has provided for him in the field, the, wor- the workers, the laborers, the, sow- the seeds to sow into the field, and he's using what he has to give God glory and to take care of others. So when we look at this, God provides us resources And we steward those resources for him. That's what Boaz is doing. He's stewarding those resources. So today we often say that, you know, we're going to worship God with the act of giving and we're going to give 10%. Like that's what the Bible sets for us. We're going to tithe, make a tithe to the church. Absolutely. But God also wants that 90%. He wants you to steward that 90% for his glory. He wants you to use that live generously. Now the standard is set at 10% to give back to the local body, but that doesn't stop there in that. We're not called just to give 10%. We're no, the 100% is all God's. We're managing it. We're using it for his glory. 
That's how Boaz treated his field. Because he lost money when he gave that barley away to, to Ruth. He lost money in that. But he wanted to take care of it. He wanted to help them. Now we can't help and we can't serve everyone and everything and every need that comes our way. We just can't. We have limited resources. But we can, when we feel the Spirit leading us, to give, to help, to provide. Not just financially, but in everything that we have. We are stewards of what God has given us. And it says in verse 17, So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley out that she had gathered, and it was amounted to about an epith. An epith is a, usually, uh, um, uh, when, she, when she gathered this, an epith was an unusual amount for one day's worth of gleaning. Uh, it's about 30 pounds of barley that she has gathered here. Enough for multiple days for her and Naomi to, to eat going back. And I don't know if you remember this last week when, when Pastor Kevin said this, but the barley harvest was the very first harvest to begin, and it begins in late April, early May. And Boaz invites her to continue to come back through all the harvests, which stop in August to September. God is providing for them not just one time, but over a long period of time, because God's sovereign in this. Fourth thing we see in this text is God seeks. Verses 18 through 13, God seeks us. Starting in verse 18, it said, when she, when she took it up and went into the city, remember she's in the field, so she's going back into the city of Bethlehem. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. That's her lunch. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Remember, we're going to go back to verse one in this. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Cha-ching, connecting to verse one. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, least in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman, in Bo- in, uh, close to the young woman, women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. We start to see Naomi back into the picture. When we left her in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, what was she? She was bitter. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Is she bitter anymore? She's not bitter anymore. She blesses this man. Actually, twice. The first time, she didn't even know who she was blessing. She says, bless the man that provided for you in this, but now she knows who it is. She says in verse 20, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi moves from bitterness, which she calls, she says, God, you are my source of bitterness. And now something has switched to now she's saying, God, you are now my source of joy. Let's just pause and and think. Did God change in the middle of this story? Did something of who God is change in this story? No. Naomi's perspective changed. Naomi's understanding of what's going on changed. Naomi's, I'm going to say her comfort and her assurance changed in this, but God never changed. How about in your life? How about in your life? 
Have you become bitter and mad at God and you wag your finger at him and asking him, why are you doing this? When he never changes and then months later your circumstance changes and now you find great joy in him. What's the difference? Barry Webb says this. He says, those like Ruth who seek God in the God of, uh, seek refuge in the God of Israel will find to their great surprise that he's already been seeking them. That's what changed. Naomi realized that God was actually providing for her. He's providing for her in this kinsman redeemer. Now what this kinsman redeemer is, if we actually go back all the way to chapter one and verses 11 through 12, after we're told that, uh, her, that Naomi's sons have died and he's talking to Ruth and Orpah, he says, have I yet sons, or she says, have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear you sons nine months later, would you therefore wait until they are grown age 16 to then marry them? No, that's ridiculous. You could never do that. I don't, there's not a kinsman redeemer that can marry you, Ruth or Orpah, until Boaz steps in. Once again, the law here points to the redemption of God's people. And what it was is when when, uh, like say if I, if I passed away and, and I had a, a younger brother, my younger brother that would then marry Katie. This is really cool. He would then actually name, if they had a son together, they would actually name their son Ethan so that my lineage could continue on through that child. But here Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer so that he can marry Ruth and continue the lineage of God's people. And we know, I can give you the end of the story, through Ruth and Boaz come Obed, who comes King David, who through King David comes Jesus the Messiah. God is so sovereign that over tens of generations, he's working out his master plan. In your life, where you're at, because God directs, he's working out a master plan that we may not see come to fruition for tens of hundreds of generations down the line. Because God is that powerful. Does God change? We're the ones that change. Our perspective, our understanding, our trust, our reliance upon what we're placing our faith and trust in, that's what changes. In this, Naomi sees this change. We see this change in Naomi. No longer is she saying, God, you've caused my bitterness, but God, you've caused my joy. Because there's a kinsman, there's a redeemer. There's a redeemer in this story. There's a redeemer in your story, and it's God. God seeks us out, and he redeems our story. He takes what was meant for evil, and he turns it for good. Well, I hope that the Holy Spirit did a work inside you, that he ministered to you, and I hope that you become more like Jesus in relying and trusting in God's direction in your life. Well, make sure you hit that follow or subscribe button on however you listen to your podcasting so that you automatically receive my teachings. The next time I'm going to be teaching is actually on August 8th, and I'm going to be teaching out of our Salem campus. So I'm really looking forward to that, and we hope to see you soon here at Fellowship Community Church.